The people have spoken yet again, and Joe Biden has officially won the presidency following the vote of the Electoral College. To discuss the 2020 cycle and the Georgia runoff races, we're joined now by American Bridges' own Sasha Haworth here on The War Room. Welcome back to The War Room at American Bridge. I'm your host, David Brock, co-founder of American Bridge 21st Century. Joining us today is Sasha Haworth. Sasha is our political director and director of external affairs. She came to Bridge with extensive campaign experience across the political spectrum, having spent time working on the Hill, at the DCCC, House Majority PAC, and many more. She also served as a senior communications advisor on the John Ossoff campaign in 2017. To talk more about what went right and what went wrong in the 2020 election, she joins us in the war room. Welcome, Sasha. Well, before we begin, Sasha, why don't you tell us a little bit about your start in politics prior to joining American Bridge? Um, what brought you into the political arena and what were some of the early experiences you had um, that shaped your career before you came to us? Sure. Um, well, so my first political campaign was 10 years ago now um, when I started as a field organizer for a gubernatorial primary in Minnesota. Um, I had never volunteered on a campaign before. My family is originally from England. Um, I was born there. And at that point, none of us was a citizen. Um, and, and I just loved it. And in addition to feeling like I was, you know, tapping into some sense of civic duty I didn't know that I had, I just loved the camaraderie of a campaign. Um, I had done musical theater in high school and college, and it felt like a similar kind of production where lots of sort of, you know, talented, creative, um, either optimistic or curmudgeonly people uh, work as hard as they can um, for a very limited number, or very limited um, amount of time, knowing that it's going to end. Um, so I just loved it. I, you know, we weren't victorious in the primary, but it did uh, give me the bug, so to speak. Um, and after that, I found myself working in campaigns um, wherever I was in the country in one way or another. Um, in 2012, I came out to DC for um, grad school at Georgetown to get my master's in public policy. And soon after arriving here, I started working on the Hill um, for a now retired member of Congress. His name is Rick Nolan. Um, he represented the district up in Northern Minnesota, Minnesota 8. Um, and it was a frontline district as the DCCC classifies it. Um, uh, swings, it's a swing district. Um, it voted for Trump in 16, voted for Trump again in 20. Um, and uh, it taught me not just how um, Congress works. Um, working for Rick was an experience because he had actually served um, in the 70s um, and came back to serve again in Congress after a 32-year hiatus, which is the longest break that any member of Congress has ever had, fun fact. Um, he obviously taught me the ins and outs of the legislative process, but I also learned um, what it meant to get reelected in a district that um, trends conservative. Um, the policies you focus on are, are naturally and necessarily different than those you focus on, um, you know, if you were to work for a Democrat in a very reliably blue district. Um, you're forever in persuasion mode. Um, now, Rick um, was unabashedly for Medicare for all. He was like your classic big government liberal. Um, but he also focused on um, natural resources and the sort of the 
types of mining that they do up in that district that were frankly not popular with other liberals in the delegation or on the nation, um, but were so crucial to constituents um, who just, you know, were thinking about where their next paycheck was coming from. So that, um, that allowed me to really cut my teeth in the type of competitive battleground district that I've continued to work in um, ever since. Right. Well, that's a great segue to Bridge because <laughs> we were doing a major persuasion campaign and uh, a lot of Republican and independent voters um, were in our sights. So um, you came before we launched our swing state project, which was to flip the Obama-Trump voters in the key battleground states in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And we know now, um, you know, after the fact, based on the numbers that uh, this program was a, a key contributor to rebuilding that blue wall for President-elect Biden. So why don't you tell us uh, what your role was in the project? Um, and then we'll get into a little bit about how we were measuring our success. But what was what was the gist of what you were doing for us? I was American Bridges political director. Um, it sort of is an all-encompassing all term. Um, before uh, we really launched into the paid media part of the job, I was like an outreach uh, liaison um, to uh, during the impeachment process to um, committees on the Hill um, and to other progressive organizations to um, share the research that American Bridge was doing as part of the war rooms efforts to um, conduct oppo on um, members of Trump's cabinet um, and then in various other, you know, nefarious hangers on of the Trump um, orbit during the impeachment process. So that was a cool and exciting part of my job that um, eventually faded away once we began the paid media um, portion. So then I sort of morphed into the paid media director, um, like you mentioned, and um, eventually launched this ultimately uh, $65 million project in these three states. And um, so tell me a little bit about um, how we did it. Um, I, we know the goals were to flip the Obama-Trump voters and in the counties we were working in, uh, we didn't necessarily think we'd flip these counties, though some of them did end up flipping, but we were working on the margins to keep Trump's margins down. Um, what, what went into the project? Yeah, um, we knew um, right from the outset that uh, we were going to start early to go after Trump, especially among the rural white non-college voters that we didn't talk to enough in 2016. Um, and, um, we knew that Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, um, were going to be the three pivotal states. We didn't know it at the time. We kind of thought that Michigan would be the most pivotal one, um, just judging by the polling. Then maybe it was Wisconsin. And then of course, at the end of the day, it ended up being Pennsylvania as the crucial electoral, um, state. Um, and like measuring success was something we, um, we struggled with identifying just how to do at the top. You know, how do you measure success in a project, as you point out, that is fought on the margins, um, especially when you're um, trying to promote it? You're looking at margins of victory in some of these places, one, two, three percentage points max um, in these counties that Trump won that we were trying to just scrape away from him um, for 2020. Um, we had terrific data um, analysts who created a model at the very beginning. So we knew exactly where to target, um, which counties and which media markets would be um, most efficient for us to spend our dollars. Um, and they turned out to be not, you know, 
surprise, uh, unsurprisingly, not the big urban markets, um, but more of these um, sort of patchwork um, outer markets where we identified people who were most likely to defect from Donald Trump. Um, we had a paid canvas operation early on. We knocked 80,000 doors um, within that modeled universe um, in order to uh, find folks to, um, to to talk to us. You know, we'd knock on the door and be like, hey, how's it going? We, we didn't want to um, come in heavy handed with issues from the beginning. We, we knew we went in with an open mind and really tried to understand what was gripping these folks in the very beginning. Um, so we did that with a paid canvas op- operation. We also did it with a traditional um, survey um, where, um, and we also identified, or we also invested in a media habit study to determine not only, um, you know, where these voters were, how they got their media, so in what news sources um, they trusted, but then also really um, dialed down to a granular level, you know, is it local news? Is it AM, FM radio? Um, and that's how we determined not only where to go, um, generally what to say, but and also how to do it. And what did you, um, at the end of the day, I know we did a lot of uh, polling and focus grouping. What, what did you learn about these voters? And was there, was there one, one kind of key that unlocked their willingness to think twice about Trump and then defect, or was it a range of different issues? Well, I think, was there one kind of key? I mean, let's let's talk about, I think it's helpful to talk about who these folks are. Um, these are Obama-Trump voters. You know, these are um, the large part, the Obama-Trump voters. They're the, we identified one and a half million potential Trump defectors across these three states. Um, they're mostly rural, they live in small towns, um, and they think about politics for like less than five minutes a week. Okay. They're not on Twitter. And, you know, according to our media habits study that I mentioned, they're not even watching Fox news. Um, so in order to create an effective persuasion ad for these, for these people, you can't go in there, you know, railing about his brash, about Trump's brash personality, um, or his lies or how he cheats on his wife or all, you know, all these disqualifying things. And, they are disqualifying to be sure, but these folks, um, you know, you're not going to win hearts and minds by telling people how stupid the guy that they voted for was. Um, they knew that he was brash in 2016. They knew that he talked locker room talk, you know, maybe they do too. Um, they, they learned, they knew that in 2016 and they accepted it. They voted for it anyway. So, um, you know, you kind of, I had to go back to what I learned working for, uh, Congressman Nolan in that battleground house district, um, where you realize that, you know, maybe they, maybe they sound like him too, or maybe they know someone down the street that sounds like him too. And so these, you know, um, these standards to which, um, you and I might hold our politicians. And I do think that there's an element of, you know, I I do think that we should be holding our politicians and our elected leaders to a higher standard. Um, not everybody may think that way. Um, so going in, um, it's an overused phrase, um, and Bradley, if he listens to this, he's uh, Bradley Baychuk, our president, is going to laugh that I'm using it. Um, but uh, you know, we had to create a permission structure to um, allow these folks to see our ads and then realize that it was okay to change their minds. And we couldn't do that by beating them over the head with how you know um, how much of an idiot Donald Trump was. Um, we had to uh, find 
someone who looked like them, who talked like them, who was from their area that um, could talk from the heart about why they have changed their minds. Um, we also knew that from our media habit studies that local news mattered. So rather than you know use a clip from MSNBC, we would intercut some footage from you know their local um, news affiliate. That's a local anchor that they recognize that's um, allowing them to connect the dots between their lived experience, whether it be healthcare related, um, you know, economy related, or eventually COVID related, and the policies or the actions of the Trump administration that has um, made everything worse. Um, so overall, these types of voters are highly skeptical. They know when they're being lectured to, and they don't like it. I mean, who would who likes being lectured to, right? So we had to really dial it back um, and make sure that anything we put on TV or radio um, was what they call, you know, a soft attack. It's not one of those overt, um, you know, spooky political ads. Um, it's a, you know, it's a much more um, dialed back, calm, soft attack on Donald Trump because that's that's the only way that you gain people's trust. Right. So... Um, let's talk a little bit more about the style of these ads. Um, they got a lot of attention uh, in the press um, when we would release them because it was, a, I guess, a somewhat um, unique tactic um, where we used authentic voices solely um, and um, in authentic ways, their own voice. Um, they were not um, overly produced ads. Um, and it was basically... Uh, a voter, uh, a neighbor talking to a neighbor or a fellow coworker or colleague, fellow churchgoer, et cetera. But it was all local to local. Um, so how important was that as part of the reason that these ads were, I know, um, about a month out uh, rated uh, the most effective persuasion ads that were out there um, in the uh, in the campaign. Um, so how, how important was that? And where did, where did we come up with that in the first place? I think that style of ad was the defining element of our program. Um, and we came up with it because, you know, we watched the model of um, other organizations who had done similar things in 2018 using real person testimonials on TV. Um, and we thought, okay, well, you know, American Bridge we already know how to talk to Republicans. We already have on state or in state staff um, in Republican areas. You know, why don't we um, effectively create field producers out of these staff and try to almost embed in these um, areas to get to know these folks um, and ask them, would you be willing to tell your story on camera too? Um, or if there was <laughs> um, one thing that I could, that I could do over, um, from the cycle and knowing that I would save um, ourselves a lot of time doing this, it would be um, to not expect um, to find a lot of these folks who are willing to go on TV. Um, there's so much psychological hurdle, emotional hurdles to overcome, um, to, you know, talk about, uh, your politics, let alone who you're going to vote for, let alone um, the fact that you um, are going to admit that you regret having voted for Donald Trump and you've now changed your mind. You know, I'm, I grew up in the Midwest. 
Midwesterners, Midwesterners, we don't like to talk about our politics. You know, working in field, you got a lot of doors politely closed in your face as soon as you bring that up. Um, so it was really hard um, to find people to do this. There's a reason why people hire actors to be in their television ads, because it is very hard to find real voters who are willing to do it. And, and frankly, who even then pass a background check um, to um, then go on TV. Um, it's it's not an easy task. And so it took us a long time to ramp up to the point where um, we were consistently pulling in enough um, willing participants um, to, you know, feel comfortable with where we were. So, um, but it, it, that was what made the ads, you know, so effective. Um, and it didn't, you know, and what we learned is the messenger mattered. They could be talking about their their grandson. They could be talking about their plumbing job. They could be talking about um, their dairy farm and the cows. And, you know, it didn't always matter whether they were hitting on some poll tested issue that we knew tested well with these Trump defectors, as long as their story was personal and um, and real, which it was, it was going to be um, it was going to be effective. Um, and don't just take my word for it. We um, throughout the two year cycle, we tested our ads um, in December tw- 2019, about a month after we had first um gone on air. We did an experimental ad test that showed that uh, ads that were shown in markets, um, sorry, that the, we did an experimental ad test in markets that saw our ads, Trump support decreased by 3%. In markets where they didn't see our ads, Trump support increased by 3%. So that was the first clue that we had that we, that we knew that these these things were working because otherwise it was in a vacuum, right? Um, in May 2020, you know, so about six months later, we um, we did another similar ad test. We also did YouTube brand lift test, which shows overall how they're working. We were fortunate to participate in a, um, sort of an open sourced um, ad testing um, uh, ad testing platform that um, would, would do rolling ad tests, which is how we know that our um, persuasion ads were the most effective overall. Um, and, you know, also I have to think another measure of success was not our typical measure, but um, there was a ad that we put on air early on to counter um, an attack they threw out on, on Biden over China. Um, and in order to give Biden cover, we had this ad in the can. And so we put it on air and that resulted in a really nasty presidential tweet um, and a cease and desist. So um, you have to you have to imagine that. Um, when you're getting under their skin, something's working on that front as well. And was it for the folks that stepped up and were in the ads, was it a good experience for them ultimately? Yes, I think so. Um, I, like I said, it's not easy. And we, we really made sure that, um, you know, we, we kept checking in with them. We made sure that they were doing okay. Um, these are people from really small towns. You know, I think one town was like a popular is a couple hundred people in Wisconsin. Um, and you know, a couple people were not okay. A couple people were harassed. Um, we had to take down an ad early on, um, because a woman had, um, faced a lot of backlash in her community and her daughter, you know, asked us to take down, take it down. 
Um, and we did out of respect, you know, we don't want anyone, we don't want anyone to get harassed. Um, that was absolutely not our goal. And, um, you know, and then later on, another woman, um, told us, you know, we checked in with her a couple of weeks after we aired her ad, um, and, uh, checked in with her and she said she had just come from church and, uh, and, uh, her pastor pulled her aside after the service and said, you know, I really wish you hadn't done that. So, you know, and of course that's, that's kind of what you, you hope that your ads have an impact in communities like that. That was the goal. Um, we just wanted to make sure, you know, we always kept, kept checking in with them and making sure that they weren't, um, they weren't facing too much backlash from their friends and neighbors. So, um, so we did these first person talk directly to camera type of ads. Um, I just was wondering if you had thoughts on, there's been a lot of chatter in the past few weeks about these other type of ads, these movie trailer type campaign ads that uh, have taken off on platforms like Twitter. Um, what do you think of that? I think they're effective for a different reason. Um, you're trying to raise money, trying to draw attention to yourself or your organization. Um, I think during the general election, they were also really effective for the audience of one, right? I mean, talk about, I mentioned the, our, um, our counterattack ad early on that got under Trump's skin. Um, those are, that's how you do it, right? Um, and it, and it has the effect of drawing the eye of Sauron, so to speak, away from, you know, something else he could be doing, which is, you know, ostensibly persuading the voters that you're also trying to persuade. So it buys you a little time, uh, buys you a little cover. Um, so, you know, I think they have a purpose and um, I'm certainly not suggesting no one make them. Um, I think we knew that for the types of rural, small town, white working class folks, um, they are extremely not on Twitter. <laughs> um, they listen to radio. They're, you know, they don't even have, you know, they're not going to have satellite radio in their car. They're going to have AM FM radio. Um, and that's where we put our ads. We had radio. Um, we invested heavily in, like I said, the rural media markets um, and a little bit of mail as well towards the end. So um, we knew how to get these folks. Um, and we also knew that, you know, this sort of um, over the top, um, uh, theatrical spots that are going to do really well um, mobilizing Democrats um, are simply going to, A, turn off the types of voters that we needed to persuade, and, and worse, B, backlash so that they're fired up to vote for Donald Trump. And that's what we saw with um, – when we, you know, we sort of tested um, various options along the way, um, as you do, and and we and we found that, you know, these these testimonial ads were persuasive because they were persuasive, but they also prevented folks from swinging so far the other way. Um, Donald Trump is inspires such fervent support among his base that the second you show a picture of him, the second you show, you know, the second you play a clip of him talking. Um, they, 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 you know, they tense up and they tend to go to their partisan corners and you've lost them. Yeah. Right. The, the defensive reaction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, um, why don't we talk about Georgia a bit? Um, that's where all political eyes are 
for the next few weeks anyway. Um, and looking ahead to that runoff campaign, um, American Bridge is committing about $12 million to targeting working class Republicans and independents to, uh, to flip over to the Democratic candidates Warnock and Ossoff in this January 5th election. And um, we know early voting has already begun. Um, you have a history with John Ossoff. In 2017, you served as senior communications advisor in his special election campaign, which at the time was the most expensive uh, house race in, in uh, I guess, in the nation's history. So based on that experience, um, what are you looking for in Georgia? How do you think we're gonna fare? Um, and uh, any uh, comments um, on the bridge program in particular? Uh, it's, it's not dissimilar to some of the work we were doing in the, the Rust Belt states for Biden. That's right. And oh boy, I, I mean, I think that Georgians now for better or for worse are used to being bombarded with political ads. I mean, in the last three years, we had the special house race 2018. We had the, you know, two competitive house districts, you know, competitive statewide and now generals and the ensuing runoffs. There's, there's so much money um, being spent in Georgia. Um, Atlanta, the Atlanta media market is um, about 70% of the state. Um, and that's where the majority of the money is. It's also a very expensive uh, media market. Um, there are many other markets around the Atlanta media market, and that's we, where American Bridge is going to be um, investing. Um, so we've, we've taken the lessons that we learned in the 2020 general, um, where we can sort of carve out a program that communicates to rural small town voters um, in a you know, in a, in a, as I said, in a targeted way, we have um, a modeled universe of potential Senate defectors. Uh, it's a combination of people who either um, are trending towards Democrats, they voted for Biden, but maybe didn't vote um, Democratic on the Senate ticket, um, or they um, voted for Democrats, but might need a little bit more persuading um, to vote for them again during the runoff. And we also have a couple GOTV uh, targeted universes that we'll draw from as well. Um, and we're using that to, um, uh, we've been on TV for a couple of weeks now, um, and we're using that to craft a program, a communications program um, that, again, is similar to the soft attacks that we ran during the presidential. Um, at a certain point, um, all that money is going to have diminishing returns. Um, they're going to be showing, you're going to be seeing the same spooky ads, especially if you live in the Atlanta media market. But if you live anywhere in Georgia, in Savannah, Macon, Augusta, um, Albany markets, there's, you know, you're, you're a lot of folks stream TV. It's like OTT, it's radio, it's digital, it's everywhere now. Um, and at some point they're going to, they're going to either tune it out or they're going to, you know, vote early and then tune, tune it uh, turn it off, right? So that's where our ads, I think, are going to cut through again, because they don't look like your typical attack ad, um, which again is persuasive to a certain element, but it's not as persuasive to the rural voters that we're looking at. We took a look um, before before we decided to make the investment. Um, we took a look at at the map and and sort of you know and and realized that there wasn't really anybody replicating the type of program that we were doing. Um, that we had just done. So that's where we decided. Um, we're also doing um, 
what I think smart investments in some field programs and other other areas of the state. Um, but our um, paid media program primarily will um, invest in rural markets, rural radio to cut through the noise um, and to hopefully, again, chip away at these tiny, tiny margins of Trump support just enough to put John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock over the edge. Um, it's as much a dissuasion program as it is a um, persuasion program as well, because I, um, I don't think that we'll be running positive. It's all negative. Um, and again, we don't have to win any of these rural counties. We just have to lose them by less. Um, and so just to wrap up, give us the odds. What do you, th- how do you think we're going to do here? You know, in the public polling, um, it is an extremely tight race. It is, um, it's, it's so tight. And if I have a lesson from 2017, it's just, you just have to run, you know, we came so close, um, and you just have to keep running the table. There are so many people who are doing the crucial turnout mobilization work um, and among the, those constituencies that we need to move. And that's so important. Again, that's like not where American Bridge is, is useful. So that's why I think it's um, I think it's really crucial that we're doing both this time around as well, both persuasion and the turnout. Um I can't give you anything more than 50-50. You know, it's, it's, I, I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, thank you for your time. Thank you. Sasha, thanks so much for joining us today. We look forward to having you on again. For more information on American Bridge, check out AmericanBridgePack.org. Check back for more podcasts and information in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Until next time, I'm David Brock. Thanks for listening to The War Room at American Bridge.